Awesome. We are only uh, two messages away. Today is in one more of, of being completing our, our series on James, a series on B, uh, what it is to be a disciple, and looking through the eyes of, of James in regards to this. And today our passage comes back actually full circle to where we began in chapter 1 way, way back in September uh, when we started this um, and talking about what it is to have patience. If you remember in chapter 1 it says uh, to, to have perseverance through trials and temptations. And here we are again talking about patience and finding patience. Well, to get there today, I want to go back to where we started with, with this. Is a, we talked about an on-demand economy. That's what we live in, right? Where everything is on demand. I, I ordered, skipped the dishes last night. It was on demand, right? It came to my house. I, uh, we can turn on our, our TV and get whatever show we want. It's called streaming Netflix. It's called any of them. Like there's like a thousand streaming services in the past year that have popped up, it seems. But, uh, you know, Disney Plus, you got uh, Amazon Prime. You got so many of them. Everything's on demand. Entertainment, food, internet, health. It's all on demand. You want it and you want it now. That's where we live. The slow, easy days of, of a, a more agricultural-driven economy seems to be no longer. The example that, the really big example I gave that a long time ago was about streaming in particular and downloading. How we're going from this 4G world to a 5G world pretty quickly. And you hear it all over the news and the estimates of the difference and change is a download speed of three gigabytes can meet some for some of us about 27 to about 40 minutes. It's going to be a somewhere around the, the field of 35 seconds. That's what they're predicting. That's incredible. We no longer have to wait for that, for that, for that three gigs to download. Maybe that way we'll be too impatient eventually for 35 seconds. That's the world we live in. It's on demand. And as James began with perseverance and trials and having joy in those times, so he end, is ending. He's beginning to wrap up his letter. As he says, Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. Until the Lord's coming. So before we looked at the perseverance and trials and pains and finding joy, and now we look at the how. Or maybe even more so the lens in which we look through our, to our world to find patience. How do we get there? How do we get to that moment of getting patience? What's the secret, right? We want to know that. Especially if you have little children, you want to know, what does it mean to have patience? God, give it to me because I don't have it, right? I don't have it. I'll say this. We need not get caught up in the situation we're in, but knowing who I am, namely that I am his, in the midst of the situation lets me breathe and have patience. I'm going to read that one more time for you. We need not get caught up in the situation, but knowing who I am in the midst of the situation lets me breathe and have patience. It's this idea of self-differentiation where I'm learning to, to be me and learning about who I am. What makes me unique and, and what, what separates me from a situation. You know, these are the people in your life who are very self-differentiated, who are like, like are pretty level-headed, especially in crisis. They, can, they seem to just know who they are and what's going on and then how to deal with it. Where most of us maybe just panic. I don't know. Are you a panicker in, in, in hard times? 
right? That's what a self-differentiated person is. They're able to see themselves and who they are and, and, and know what the value you bring to your situation or a team. Well, there's also self-differentiation in light of the kingdom, in light of the coming kingdom of God. It's even more valuable, actually, to know who you are in light of the coming kingdom. To know that you are a child of God. And that will become pretty apparent as we go through our passage today of why that is important. Because then not only am I level-headed, but I know where to put my head in situations, in trials. As verse 7 then begins, says, Be patient, then brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. James has changed his tone yet again. Uh, if you notice before, he was saying, like, now listen. Now listen up. He was addressing these uh, merchants and traders who were not including God in their day. And then he was addressing the rich. The rich who were actually oppressing the poor and actually causing death because they weren't paying their wages. That's the image that he's saying, now listen, which is a little more stern, right? Like a father pointing a finger. But now he comes back to this language of brothers and sisters. Now brothers and sisters. As he begins to say this, to be patient. Be patient then. Be patient is the opposite command, it seems, that the rich were given. Um, ma many commentators are saying maybe there weren't too many rich people in the church at the time. So he was addressing the poor mainly. So when he was admonishing and, and, and correcting the rich, he was more trying to get the poor to, to be rallied up and saying, yes, God will oppose the rich and, and help us and bring justice to us. Whereas if there was rich in the room, they would have been pretty convicted at the rich passage from before. So now he turns his attention to the majority in the room. He says, be patient then, brothers and sisters until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, and how patient he is for the autumn and the spring rains. He's calling for patience. Patience, David Nystrom says, carries the idea of waiting with calm and expectancy. Waiting with calm and expectancy. I think the call for, for patience here is actually resting in God's justice. That, that we trust that God will actually bring his justice in his time. Because we see it. It says, until the Lord's coming. Until the Lord's coming spoke of the end, uh, end moment of time. As we begin to enter into eternity, that Jesus promised that he would come back and be the judge of the living and the dead. And justice would come of all the injustice in the world. Yes, the call for patience is in resting in God's justice to bring us into that final epoch, that final time called eternity. It's actually really interesting here that, that the Lord is actually Jesus here. It's pretty obvious. It comes, you can see it back in Luke 4, 16 to 21, that the Lord here in his return, Jesus predicted this over and over again, that he would return, he would come again. It's Jesus. But later on in our passage, in verse 11, it says, As you know, we consider blessed those who persevered. Have you heard of Job's perseverance? Job is in the Old Testament. Jesus wasn't born yet. And have you seen what the Lord finally brought about? 
The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. James doesn't have much for like Christology, like theology. Uh, he does a lot of commands. He says you should do this, 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 and this. Whereas like Paul is so full when in his letters of, of theology. And, uh, so James here is surprising everyone when he comes to this moment of saying, of equating in the end Jesus with God. In his one moment in his letter, he's saying Jesus is Lord. He's God. We're waiting for him to return. Our God, Jesus. When he returns, he brings his justice. Well, more of a side tangent than anything as we get into this, but important nonetheless. There's a call here to be patient with the end in mind. Be patient in light of what is coming, of who is coming. And his name is Jesus. That was James, what he was proclaiming. So he uses an, al an analogy to bring this about. And so in the city, we maybe have to explain this one a little more, okay? So see how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop and how patient he is for the autumn and spring rains. So you too be patient. So being patient with the end in mind, what he gets to is this. It shapes how we live today. It actually shapes how we live today. There's this analogy of a farmer in the fields that is, he's done his planting. He's, he's waiting now for the elements to take their toll on his crop. What will happen this season? I mean, for, for me, I would be worrying so much, but over and over again, a farmer does this. Puts millions of dollars into the field and hoping that it'll produce even more millions of dollars, right? What a risk. What a risk. What an investment, even. He says to be patient like the farmers, though, who wait expectantly for their crop to pop up. For the Lord surely acts, is what he's getting at here as well. You see, the crop was wealth in James's day. As is actually quite a bit of wealth in the world in crops today as well. But in particular in James's day, that was the wealth. They're waiting for these autumn and spring rains. In the Mediterranean, there were two uh, rainy seasons that they depended on for the crop to grow, and that was these, the autumn and spring. Um, so I was in Vegreville, so about an hour and a bit away from here, in uh, rural Alberta for about nine years. And uh, there's just loaded with farmers all around waiting for their crop to grow every single year. And it, for me, it feels very stressful, right? To see, see farmers come in on a Sunday morning and like calm, and there's been a drought for like two months. I'm like, what? What are you doing? I'm like, yeah, yeah, we're waiting, waiting for the rain, right? Some are more stressed than others. It depends on their personalities. But often you would see this. They've experienced it, especially the older farmers. Because over and over again, they've seen the Lord act. And they were patient. One summer in particular, we got a lot of spring rain. A lot of spring rain. The snow uh, left and it was it melted very quickly because of all this rain. And, and it was very exciting. The, it was very exciting that uh, the crop would grow quickly. So it did. And then it got very hot very quickly. So a lot of rain, very hot. Crop grows very well. And so it started growing, growing, growing. The rain stopped though. Most of summer then, the rain was gone. There was no rain. And so, you know, you start to get a little worried of, is the crop going to continue growing or is it just going to stop? Be a little premature. Late in the season, like it's getting closer. They're wondering, maybe I should just begin harvest. It's kind of done growing. It's going to be what it's going to be. It begins to rain and rain and rain and it's warm and it's raining. 
and the crop begins to grow again. It was really interesting, though, because they were saying to me that there's actually two crops in the field this year, which is very unique. There was like a spring crop that grew and, and grew quickly, and now there's a, a fall crop that's growing, and there's like two different grains of, uh, of wheat. And so they were wondering, when do we harvest? When do we harvest? Do we harvest earlier on and, and get that first crop in? You know, the second crop would be quite green still. It would be quite moist, which is not good for crops, by the way. You need to be nice and dry or it might combust or rot. <laughs> um, and so some started early and got done early and dealt with that. And, and some decided, I'm going to wait. Most, I think, decided they're going to wait. And they waited and waited. And you know what happened? They ended up having to harvest in the snow. Like it was November, snow was coming down, but any standing grain, that was fine. They just harvested in the snow. And they got their crop and it yielded great, great produce that year. That's just a glimpse. That's like a, I'm not sure about you, but I, I don't think I could be a farmer, right? Like I don't think I could do that. I don't think I could put millions in the ground. I don't have millions. I don't think I could borrow millions, put it in the ground, right? And then wait and see how I'm going to pay that back and make a profit. No, but this is the call to be patient like a farmer who trusts it seems that the Lord would bring fruit, that he would bring the harvest in. David Nystrom uh, says it this way. The emphasis here is double. Not only on patience, but also on the surety of the farmer that the rains and the harvest will indeed come, each in its due season. It's not just about being patient, even not knowing the results, but it's being patient, leaning in on the promise of God, knowing that he is surely good, that he brings about the harvest. Of course, here in our passage, it's about him coming back to trust. I mean, it's been 2,000 years, right? How do we still trust that he's returning? He's going to come back. But here's the call. Be patient on the Lord because he, he will surely act. Well, the passage goes on in verse 8. You too, be patient and stand firm. Or another way of saying it is establish your heart in some translations. Because the Lord's coming is near. Because the Lord's coming is near. Establish your heart is what that really means, that stand firm. And that's an interesting comparison. And, and the ESV and the NIV, I've been going back and forth between these two a lot lately. And, and that's the difference they mean. Last time... It was the same kind of thing. You establish yourselves means establish your heart. It seems the language, which means this. It's your inner being. In the midst of being patient, in the midst of waiting for the Lord's return, we don't just sit back idly and, and have a seat and just wait. Now you see a farmer is still doing things. The farmer has to prepare equipment for the harvest. The, you know, there's work to do, and the work for us is establishing our hearts. We still have work to do. Well, Douglas Moo calls, says it this way. He says, What is commanded then is a firm adherence to the faith in the midst of temptations and trials. And for the poor here, the oppression from the rich. As they wait patiently for the Lord to return, believers need to fortify themselves for the struggle against uh, sin and with difficult circumstances. 
No, we don't just say, I'm going to live my life the way I'll live it and, and just hope for his return. No, it means there's actually some cultivating that needs done. It means we've got to take the weeds out of the crop, right? We've got to take care of things in our lives, and that's called establishing our hearts. Firmly planting it in God so it doesn't waver in trials and temptations. Establishing our hearts is what was important. There's heart work to do. And it needs done with our eyes on eternity. It's actually the only way it gets done. So we believe that he is coming again, that eternity is at hand. So that work keeps us patient. Keeps us patient. Final judgment is often equated to harvest. So it's neat to hear that he used the crop analogy because at the end, the crop comes in, right? The harvest has to come in. And we see this in, in uh, many different passages, but in Matthew 9, 38, Jesus asks, says you should ask to send workers out in the harvest because the harvest is plentiful and the workers are few. It's an analogy, right? To go, spread the gospel, take the gospel wherever you're going. That's what he's saying there. So as here, there's work to do. The work is this, though, establishing our hearts. Establishing our hearts. Our world and its order are temporary. And the final age, the age of eternity is coming. So be patient and endure now in light of that. That's pretty hard though, isn't it? To wait. To wait for anything on this on-demand economy. Waiting is, is not in our nature we want to cut in line maybe or beep the horn. No, we don't beep our horn. We're Canadian. So like, we don't do that. But like, we, we're just impatient for, for what's next. It's hard to wait through something. Especially the nearness of the Lord as the language here. We're waiting for him. Do you believe it? It says, you too be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. The Lord's coming is near. What does it even mean that, is, that he's near, that, that he's like, they waited, and they were waiting, and I think you can see this as you read James, as you read the New Testament. They struggled with this nearness of the kingdom of God. What does it mean that he's coming? You know, Jesus, is, when, he, when he came, he actually preached that the kingdom of heaven is at hand, that it was near. What does he mean? You can see the church struggle with this, whether it was a, a time thing or whether it was spatial. Do you get what I'm saying? Whether it was time, he's coming in the next year, right? So get ready. There's all kinds of prophecies that pop up all over our world today. And it's like, okay, the end is near, right? So in time-wise, that it's next year, like 2020 was the worst one, right? That we got to live through, right? I lived through Y2K, the year 2000. I was in grade six or something, right? And so it's like we're all, the world was going to fall apart. Because the end was near. This meant the end was near. Uh, the re most recent, this is hilarious, the most recent Super Bowl was predicted that that one meant that the time was near, that, that, that God was, Jesus was coming back because of, uh, who won again? I forget. I don't really watch football. Phil, who was it? I don't know. Anyway, the Chiefs. Yes, right. Oh, my goodness. It was hilarious because it said uh, uh, <laughs> the Lord's Chiefs are coming. And, and anyway, it was just hilarious. It's over. We're still here. So but that's the battle we've been in for 2,000 years. What does it mean that it's near? Well, listen to how Douglas Moo states this. The early Christian conviction that the perusia, which is God's presence coming, was near or imminent, 
meant that they fully believed that it could transpire within a very short period of time. Not that it had to. Did you catch that? Like he could, could come, but it didn't, he didn't have to at any time. They, like Jesus, knew neither the day nor the hour from Mark 13, 32. But they acted and taught others to act as if their generation could be the last. That changes how we live. That changes how we live if we're living with the end in mind. Mark 1.15, though, when Jesus was proclaiming this, near was fairly ambiguous. What is near meant? Near actually means this. It's the already not yet. Have you heard that term before? The already not yet of the kingdom of God. When Jesus was born and started proclaiming the gospel, the kingdom began to break in. It started. It surely broke in. Wherever Jesus walked, the kingdom came. The sick were healed. Uh, the, 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 the blind received their sight. The oppressed uh, were, the demonically oppressed were, were set free. The kingdom came in all these different ways. People started believing in him. The kingdom was coming. Jesus, when he left then, gave all authority, it says in Matthew 28, was given to Jesus and he's now giving it to us. So wherever we step as believers, the kingdom is coming, is coming. It's already here, but not fully here. Do you get what I'm saying? Spatially is what I'm saying. When Jesus entered the world, spatially his kingdom started breaking into our world. And has constantly become, been coming since. Waiting becomes a little easier when I can focus on that kingdom and that reality. That his kingdom is breaking in and I get to be a part of it. So it seems here there's some, some time element but also spatial element that is really important to this idea, this concept of near and nearness. The patient waiting is meant to give us hope. Not anxiety that, oh no, the end is near, but hope. The rich wouldn't have been looking forward to it. If you looked at the last time we, we were here, that, that the rich were, were, they should weep and wail, it said, when the kingdom, when God, Jesus was coming back. But no, here, for the rest of us, those who are hoping in Jesus and have set our hearts on him, no, we, we have great hope and anticipation. It gives us ambition, actually, to then prepare our hearts, to establish our hearts for the Lord's return. Well, what happens when we lose track of that? What happens when we lose track of that mindset that the Lord is coming, that, that it gives us hope, that his kingdom is breaking in? Well, uh, I think James comes there. That's where he goes next with this. He says, brothers and sisters, um, anyway, well, it says in verse 9 first, don't grumble against each other, brothers, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. This judgment kind of language comes from the uh, previous passage in James where he was actually saying when you, um, when you are slandering one another, you're actually judging one another. And you're judging the law, actually, because the law says to love your neighbor as yourself. You can't judge the law. <laughs> There's only one judge. It's Jesus. And I love this image. He's standing at the door, Right? He's on the edge. Usually people get so nervous when a pastor like comes to the edge and like puts his feet over, right? Anticipation, like he's standing at the door and he's ready. It's like he's leaning in. 
in anticipation. The judge is standing at the door, ready to come back. Don't grumble against each other, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. There was obviously maybe some grumbling going on in the church at this point. Um, being patient includes not grumbling against each other. As we forget to live in light of eternity, we forget to live differently. We forget what matters. We forget what the priorities need to be, and so uh, our own priorities begin to creep up. And when someone opposes my priority, I get pretty grumpy. Or maybe our personalities don't quite rub the right way. I'm sure that happened in James's day as it does today. I'm sure if you looked around this room right now, don't do it because it'll be obvious, but like you'll see someone maybe who you're like, nah, I could just not hang out with that person and be fine, right? I'm sure there is. I'm sure maybe someone you've rubbed shoulders with the wrong way, someone maybe today that even you're, you're grumbling against. And we do these things because, because we lose sight of what is really important. We're called brothers and sisters, actually, with Christ at our side. So in one sense, of course, we're going to grumble, but there's also no need to grumble. Like literally yesterday, I was like dealing with my, my two daughters, two older daughters like fighting, and, and the one's been hitting the other. And uh, like, you can't, like you can't hit your sister. I was like, you don't hit people at school. Why are you hitting your sister? It's like, my sister, I don't have a sister at school, right? <laughs> yeah, I see some nods, right? Like, like you, you hit your siblings, but... But there's no need to grumble with the, in light of eternity. Listen to this from David Nystrom. He says, Internal bickering is an evil that can easily be set and occupy the church. It can occupy us, thereby preventing it from its primary task. We're called to make disciples. We're called to show the love of God to everyone around us. Scripture says that they'll know we're his disciples by the love within us and the love we show to each other. This is our task. Love is to overflow to us, to, to the Hamptons and to, your, and to your university and to your work job and to your family. It's to flow out of us and into the worlds and take over the world as his kingdom does. But if we're grumbling against each other, grumbling is overflowing from us. Grumbling is overflowing to families, university, to brothers and sisters, to our community. And that's what marks the kingdom in a lot of people's minds. The church is a place of internal bickering, of politics. No, we're called to get rid of that by this. By knowing who I am in light of eternity. By knowing who I am in light of the inbreaking kingdom of God that is coming today. When I know who I am, when I self-differentiate that way, my tone's different. My conversation is different. Like, I know it. I know it myself when I've lost sight. I need to step back and be like, okay, I've had tunnel vision for too long on this world. I need to back up and realize what God's doing here. It's not about me. It's about him. Well, patience results in being blessed. Don't you love that word, blessed? Here's where our passage goes. See if I can wrap this up right away here. 
Brothers, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we consider blessed those who have persevered. You've heard of Job's experience and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. So he's telling us to look at these examples of the prophets and the prophets in the Old Testament. Some of them weren't treated very well. Some were treated fine, but it seems like he's pointing to all of them in a lump sum and saying those who spoke in the name of the Lord, it was because of the name of the Lord that they were oppressed, that they got persecuted. Be it Elijah, be it whoever, um, it was those who were proclaiming the name of the Lord. But it says now, we consider them blessed. They're blessed to have persevered in suffering, that they stuck to their faith, though many were against them. Which is why Elijah came to mind, because when you read Elijah's story, it's like everyone was against him all the time. And he stuck it out, though he had moments of some pretty intense discussion with God and maybe some depression at one point. God gave him hope that he wasn't alone and that he was blessed. And so as he persevered, we're called, we call him blessed. What do we call blessed? What do we hashtag or post with when it says blessed, right? Maybe it's just this great hangout I had with my friends and I'm blessed, right? Or I take a photo with my, my, my kids and I'm saying, man, I'm blessed. Or like I get a, new, I get a house, like it's my, my first, I get a down payment, I, I get a house or I get that new car and I'm like, yeah, yeah, I am blessed, right? It's possessions, the things we have, the, maybe the people we're around and we call that blessed, which maybe that's true. But here I think where it's pointing is actually something beyond maybe that of what is blessed. These people here are called blessed because they persevered through suffering and were found faithful. Then they were called blessed. Had nothing to do with the photos they posted on Instagram. <laughs> right? It had nothing to do with getting that car. Seems here with suffering and getting through it. That was called blessed. I'm not sure we would use it the same way today. Well, Douglas Moo points this out. Happiness normally suggests a subjective emotional reaction. That's what we use as blessed here usually is happiness. So says happiness normally suggests a subjective emotional reaction. Blessing is the objective, unalterable approval and reward of God. Jesus in the Beatitudes in Matthew 5, that's what he says. Blessed are the poor in spirit. That's not blessed, right? No but they've persevered through faith, single-heartedly focused on the kingdom of God. And so they are called blessed. That's what blessing is here. James is calling perseverance through suffering as blessing. I think that redefines blessing for us. Doesn't mean I'm simply in good times, but more of a word of like, look at that person's character, how it's been developed. Look at, look at how they've been faithful. Maybe, maybe it doesn't mean like they didn't grumble the whole time about God and, and the situation, but they were faithful to the end. They stuck to God and worked it out. I think that's the example of Job here that, that he points to. Because when you look at Job, if you go back to his story, it's not that Job didn't grumble. No, he was, he was like, he didn't get it. He didn't get what was going on with his life. Job had everything taken away from him. All his possessions, he had his family taken away, and he had his health taken away. Because Satan thought, as he was talking with God, that, that Job will certainly curse you. 
God, he'll curse you if I do all these things. And he didn't. He, he, it was more like he was complaining. He was questioning God like, what did I do? What did I do? Because I'll repent. I'll do that. But I, I just have no idea. And so the, most of Job is this very intense discussion with him and his friends. And you try to read through it and you're like, wow, this is just going to go on forever. Right? But uh, that's what it is. This discussion of, of his friends calling him out and saying, oh, you can't be that good. And Job's being like, wow, I, I, I wish that was true, but I'm awesome. Right? No, he, he's trying to work it out as he complains. And finally, in the end, he actually has an interaction with God, meeting with God, where God shows him more of who he is, of who God is. He's revealing himself to Job and says that I'm all-powerful. I, I can do what I want here. I'm all-powerful. And then what he does in the end, actually, is actually blesses Job with double of whatever he had after. It's a pretty intense story to read. What does it mean then? I think it means this. We're going to work through our faith. And it's not always going to be easy. No, it's not always going to be easy to do this process of self-differentiation where I'm trying to figure out who I am, what my faith is, different from my culture, different from my parents, different from my workplace, and, and try to figure out who I am. Many of us haven't done this, and, and we, we get older and older, and we realize, wow, I don't really know who I am at all. I'm mean, just going with the flow. Maybe I've just been a Christian all my life, and I just haven't figured it out. And made a decision. No, we need to own ourselves and come to a moment where I say, this is who I am. I am a child of God and I'm ready for his return. I'm ready for him to break in. I'm ready for him to do this. But that'll take some grumbling maybe in between. Not grumbling against brothers and sisters, but maybe with ourselves. Of actually allowing the stress, allowing the stress of self-differentiation allowing the stress of working through my faith. That's okay. I mean, I encourage you as you do stuff like that, as you maybe encounter a trial, a temptation, or, or as you're going through maybe even university, to have somebody along your side to help guide you. Job had some really unhelpful friends and maybe one half-helpful friend, and, 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 and at least he had that, Right? And then he had these conversations with God. And this is, I think, his key. So include God in this conversation as you're struggling with your faith. I think many of us, when we struggle with God and, and, and trials come our way, temptations come our way, we, we're like, I don't know if God's actually helping me here. We put him to the side and like, I'll figure this out. And actually God's saying, no, 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 I want you to figure it out with me. If you're angry at me, tell me. If you don't quite understand me, tell me. I want to show you. I want to show you who I am. Have you ever just asked God, God, who are you? And let's give him, give him 10 minutes, give him 15, give him an hour, I don't know. God, who are you? God, who am I? Who am I in light of this trial? That's what I think we learn from Job here. We don't ever suffer patiently because I don't think we know who we are. We wait patiently because he is full of compassion and mercy. And this is where he goes in the end. And I wanted to share this quote with you from David Nystrom because it, it's hilarious. So it says, James, as my wife says, which is why I'm sharing it with you, it's very smart of David Nystrom. 
to quote his wife. It's very helpful. James, I need to do it more probably. James, as my wife says, desires us to shift our attention from what is happening to us to what God is forming in us. This is what's important. In light of eternity, in light of God, Jesus coming again, in light of his kingdom breaking in, is this hard work that needs done and not necessarily the current situation. That's what I said at the beginning. It's, hey, we got to get outside of that situation and say, who am I? Who am I? I'm his. I'm good. That's why I can say, that's why you can sing that song before, right? It is well with my soul. You can't really sing that, you know. It's not well with your soul. I'm guaranteeing it. Like there's something going on that you need to work through. It is well because he is coming back. It is well because you are his child and he is well and he is good and he is full of mercy and compassion. Mercy for us. That's why we come to the table, the communion table, as he extends his hand and says, I, here's my mercy and grace. I died for you that you could come and be with me through eternity. If you just believe in me, if you confess me and, and, and say, I'm not gonna, I don't want to be the master of my own life anymore. I want you to be the master of my life. I want to I commit my life to you because you did this for me, which is this, for the forgiveness of sins, for new life and life abundantly, he offered himself for us. And that's why we come to the communion table today.